you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this evening to 1 John 5. The witness of God. Last time we were together, we talked about the source of the victory that we can live within by which we overcome the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That is what we found here, verse, the end of verse 4. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. When the things that we know about loving God and keeping His commandments become what we believe about loving God and keeping His commandments and so affect what we do. And then we are in this place, then that we are not living under subjection to God in so many words, being forced by fear to do what God says lest he strike us down, but rather we are in this place where we are living in the love of God, embracing the direction and the protection that God's commandments have afforded for our best good. And so we are compelled to walk in the Spirit, even as we live in the Spirit, that we might experience the thing that the whole book, really, the whole epistle of 1 John has been pointing us toward, fullness of joy. And just as verses 1 through 4 of 1 John 5 are, in part, a summary of the great exhortation of the book to love God and love others, and we kind of came to the climax of that last week and spoke about it in, in no uncertain terms and, and laid out that final conclusion as it relates to that matter at hand. In verses 5 through 10 of 1 John 5, we see a, a sort of what I would consider, and, and, and others might disagree with me on this, but what I would consider to be in part kind of a, a reiteration of the warnings of the book as it relates to false teachers who were among these people that, that John was writing to, who were teaching some other Christ than the one that we know, than the one that the Bible teaches, teaching that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. And something other than that we must separate from the world. So here we are in 1 John chapter 5, and if you're there with me in your Bibles, look at verse 5. The Bible says, Who is he that overcometh the world? but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So in verse 4, John told us that the thing which overcomes the world is our faith. And we connected this to the definition of world that John gave us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now we have recognized that it is not enough per se to place one's faith in Jesus Christ in the, and in doing so, being saved, we've recognized that it is not enough just to be saved to overcome the world. What I mean by that is that if all it took to overcome the world was saving faith, well, then John wouldn't need to be spending all this time warning his readers not to love the world. All he'd have to do is spend his time getting them saved. And at the moment they got saved, they would have overcome the world and they wouldn't love the world and all would be well. But that's not what we see. It's not what we see in 1 John. It's not what we see in Romans. It's not what we see in 1 Corinthians. It's not what we see in Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. What we see is all of this exhortation, all of this teaching about overcoming the world. And why would we need all of this teaching on overcoming the world if... It's simply enough that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You say, well, but, but pastor, that's what 1 John 5, 5 says. If I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then I overcome the world. Well, maybe. 
When we read in verse 5 here that the one who overcometh the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, in reality, based upon what we know of the Scriptures, we can rule out the idea that that one-time transaction whereby I place my faith and trust in Jesus to be born again is enough to overcome the world. That, that can't be what we're talking about this evening. Because if that was the case, then we wouldn't need a lot of the New Testament anymore once we were saved. And we really need the New Testament once we're saved. And of course, we have well established, we well established at the beginning of 1 John, that we can rule out the idea that a person can fall into and out of saving faith dependent upon their actions so that the idea that, well, if I'm not, coming, if I'm not overcoming the world, then I must not be saved, or then I, then, then I lose my salvation, and then when I uh, uh, come back into overcoming the world, then I gain my salvation back. We know that that cannot be the case. Indeed, there's no scripture that speaks to the idea of us being able to gain our salvation, much less lose that salvation. And if we do nothing to earn our salvation to begin with, how is it possible that then we can do something to lose our salvation? It doesn't make any sense. So then what is John speaking of here when he says, who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, there are a couple of possibilities that exist here. The first possibility is one that, that, that we can turn to through the nature of the Greek construction here. And you say, well, pastor, you're going to give us a Greek lesson. Well, no, but I am going to give you a little bit of an insight into the King James Bible. The King James translation does a wonderful thing for us in the way it translates words. We've talked before quite a bit about the, the second person pronoun, right? The singular or the plural based upon the yees and the these. And, and we talk about that regularly. One of the things we don't talk about quite as often is all of these Fs. The Fs at the end of words, right? Overcome, overcome Fs. Notice these Fs at the end of these words. The King James translators did not translate the text, he that is overcoming, but rather he that overcometh. Not he that is believing, but he that believeth. And this is not just an old way to write stuff. This is not just old language. This is an intentional reflection in the English of something that is happening in the Greek. Remember, the King James translators did a very, very good job of using the full breadth of what is available in the English language as a means by which to help distinguish various aspects of how the Greek text should be read because the Greek is significantly more precise as a language than English, even in English's apex, even at its, at its, at its greatest point. And then, of course, now we're several hundred years from that and, and our English language is really watering down and really dumbing down and uh, words don't hardly have meaning anymore. Um, but even 400 years ago, they, you, they, there was nowhere near the precision of the Greek language in the English language. So when we see this idea of, of eth, overcometh the world, believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, what we're seeing reflected there is what we would call a progressive tense. And the idea of a progressive tense is something which is happening now or, or maybe something that should be happening in a continuous manner in our lives. So it's not just the idea of something that happens. It's certainly not reflecting here a one-time action. Uh, most of you know a one-time past action with continuing results. We talked about that earlier in 1 John. That's the perfect tense, not the progressive tense. And so here we have a progressive tense, something that is happening con continuously or happening in the present. 
So that one way that we can understand this idea of what John is saying here is that when a person is in their lives, in the moment that they're living their lives, as that person is living out faith in Christ, they are overcoming the world. And this, when I say it that way, any moment that you are living out your faith in Christ, you are overcoming the world. Now, that's, that, that, that's very doctrinally familiar to us, isn't it? That, that sits right in, the, in, in a very safe, comfy spot in our understanding of what the scriptures all throughout the epistles teach us. That the exhortation from, from, from moment to moment, that as I live in, if I may say it this way, as I walk in the Spirit, not just live in the Spirit, but as I walk in the Spirit, I'm not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. That when we are in a state of faith, of obedience, of abiding, every moment that I'm in that state, living true to the faith of Christ's authority and, the, and, and, and uh, His finished work, I am naturally overcoming the world. As I said, I already read to you, or I already quoted to you a little bit of Galatians chapter 5. This is, this is something that's taught very clearly in Galatians 5 verse 16. Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul states here in no uncertain terms that when a believer is walking in the Spirit, the Spirit which he received at the moment of salvation, as he walks in that Spirit, a term which we consider to be synonymous with what Jesus taught in John 15, abide in me. So as we're walking in the Spirit or abiding in Christ, in the moment that, that the Spirit of God is actively in control of your life, you are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh because He is working the fruit of the Spirit in you. You can't have both at the same time. So this interpretation from 1 John 5, 5, what we call the progressive sort of interpretation that the man who is currently overcoming the world is the one who is living in his belief that Jesus is the Son of God. He is living out the reality. He is abiding in Christ. He is walking in the Spirit. This interpretation has good merit biblically. There's good reason to say, yep, that's supported in the Scriptures, and we can certainly see that to be true. We don't have to go to the place where we say, oh, if you're not overcoming the world, you've lost your salvation. We don't have to go to the place where we say, well, the moment that you get saved, you automatically overcome the world for the rest of your life. We don't have to go to either of those extremes. They're not necessary for us to interpret this properly, for us to interpret this in a way that makes sense with the rest of Scripture. At the moment, I am walking in my faith that Jesus is the Son of God. He has taken my sins upon Himself. He sits in that place of Lord and of my life. I will be overcoming the world. So that's the first way that we can interpret this that has good biblical merit as well as, uh, as, as, well as contextual merit. The second way that we can see John's exhortation here is kind of what we call a first step exhortation. That as a means of countering, remember, I told you that I, I believe that what John may be doing in verses 5 through 10 is kind of countering, again, he's, he's reiterating his, his countering of the false narratives of the day about Jesus, of the false teachers, right? He is, he is fighting against false teaching. So these men who had come out from them but were not of them, as John described them in John 2, 1 John 2, excuse me, they were exhorting these readers, these listeners, to several heresies, if you recall. First, they were telling them, it would seem, that they could both love the world and love Christ. So John had to tell them in 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Second, they were exhort, he was exhorting them or they were exhorting them to separate themselves in fellowship from other believers. And so John had to tell them that they needed to love the brethren. And if a man hates his brother, the truth is not in him. And then third, they were saying that Jesus had not come in the flesh and therefore he was not the son of God. And so Jesus had to, I mean, so John had to exhort them to uh, recognize that a man who does not believe that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And so if we interpret it this way, if we interpret 1 John 5, 5 in light of the idea that there may be some uh, bubbling up or, or, or summarizing the arguments against false teaching, then we see John saying that a man cannot overcome the world until he has first invested in the foundational truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And if they aren't even willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, then there is no scenario where he will find success in overcoming the world because they have not even believed that Jesus is the Christ. They have not come out of the world. How can you overcome the world if you've not come out of the world? If you have not believed on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, to be transformed, to be brought out of the world, then you're certainly not overcoming the world because you are the world. You are of the world. You are in the world. You are, you are the world. And I think both interpretations have merit in, in that I believe that this passage is speaking to summarize false teaching and, and, and the counteracting of false teaching, uh, I might lean toward personally the second interpretation. But both interpretations, I believe, are, well, they're certainly both biblically consistent and both linguistically consistent as well. So anyway, that, that gives you uh, an idea of what, what certainly might be, what John might be saying here. Let's move on to verse 6. He says in verse 6, This is that he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So John continues to speak of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he says Jesus is the Son of God, right? That's what he said in verse 5. And he says the one that overcomes the world is the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he focuses in on Jesus. And he says, this is he, speaking of Jesus himself. And then he presents various proofs that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first assertion that John makes is that Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. And John specifies not by water only, but by water and blood. And once again, this statement is relatively ambiguous and many interpretations have been given for it. I'm going to give you a few and then we'll, we'll talk about their merits. Some have taken this to be a reference to John 19, verse 34, where the soldiers pierced Jesus' side and out came water and blood, indicating that Jesus was in fact dead because the blood had separated from the plasma. But this seems unlikely to me. And the reason why this seems unlikely is because it, it doesn't just say, this is he that came by water and blood. It says, this is he that came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And that's kind of a weird statement, right? Because there's no analog in the death process to water only, right? And because there's no analog in the death process to water only, there is nobody that, I mean, there, there's no analog for that. There's no connection to that. That one doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Others have taken it to mean 
the two great signs of Jesus's ministry of reconciliation, which have translated in the Christian church to our two great ordinances. So they say water is baptism and blood is is Jesus's death on the cross, which translates to our ordinances of baptism and communion, naturally, right? First, that Jesus was baptized of John in the wilderness and the Father affirmed Jesus' ministry at that time as the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily form like, an, uh, like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. Jesus then, of course, commanded all of his followers to be baptized following their professions of faith. And this interpretation finds a measure of support perhaps in the next statement where it says, and It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And we certainly see that at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit bore witness, right? As the Spirit descended upon him in that bodily form like a dove. So, because of that, there is some measure of of, uh, support in in the latter statements for this theory. Second, of course, then, that's Jesus' baptism, and then we have Jesus' death by which he paid for the sins of mankind with the shedding of his blood. For the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus then commanding all of his his followers to partake in that memorial, which we call communion, by which we show or demonstrate the Lord's death till he come by acknowledging Jesus's body and the shedding of his blood. So that is the second interpretation. And that interpretation uh, has has relative merit. Uh, It could be what it's speaking about here. Others take this, however, not to be Jesus's baptism and his death, but rather to be Jesus's birth and his death. In John chapter 3, recall when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus speaks of the fact that Nicodemus must be born again. And as he's speaking not just to Nicodemus, he says, ye must be born again, which means he's speaking to a group of people or or to everybody, right, in in that sense. And as he speaks to him of this thing, he says, that, that you must be born of the water and of the spirit. And as we look at what that means, Jesus, in fact, interprets that in the, own, in, in the very passage. He says, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And so Jesus interprets that for himself, that the water there is a flesh birth and the spirit is a spiritual birth. The water, being born of the water, is being born physically and being born of the spirit is being born spiritually. So Jesus interprets that one for us in John chapter chapter 3, and gives us an understanding. Now, if we carry that same idea of water and blood into this passage, then we find that the idea here is that Jesus came by water and blood. He came in the flesh, and he came for our spiritual redemption. And the reason why I really like this is twofold. First, John wrote this epistle, and he wrote the Gospel of John which means we see a consistency of usage. And whenever I see a, a word that is used in a certain, especially if it's a unique way, by an author, by a writer of Scripture, I am going to always pre, be predisposed to interpret that word the same way when he uses it later. Because unless he tells us he's redefining the word, it doesn't make sense that he would use the word in multiple ways without context or definition. So I am predisposed to think that John is using the word water here the same way he recorded Jesus using it in John chapter 3. But the other reason why I like this is because, remember, a part of this false teaching was that Jesus had not come in the flesh. 
And so for him to declare that this is he that came by water and blood, meaning flesh and then redemption, makes a lot of sense to me. Now, there are likely more interpretations, but I believe, as I said, those last two have merit. I favor the final one myself because it uses that concept of water the same way as in John 3, and I always favor that consistency. However, if we take this third interpretation, we may not have as natural of a flow into the second half of this verse. We've covered the first half of this verse. In the second half of this verse, as I read before, it is, he says, and it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. So, as I said, if we believe that the water and the blood there is baptism and death, then the spirit bearing witness would naturally be, in our minds probably, the spirit of God descending on Jesus at his baptism and testifying to his divinity. If we take the water and the blood to mean birth and then death, then we would interpret this spirit witness in a different way. And there's probably several different ways we can do it, but the one that I believe would make the most sense would simply be the idea that the spirit of God bears witness in the hearts of men because of the historical reality of Jesus' life and of Jesus' death. And this also has biblical merit. If you recall Jesus' promise in John 16 regarding the ministry of the Spirit of God following his departure, he taught in, 1 John, uh, excuse me, in John 16, verses 7 through 13, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, capital C there, we're speaking of the Holy Spirit of God, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall, ye, he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So Jesus promises that the Comforter would come, that being the Holy Spirit of God. Called in verse 13, the spirit of truth, the same way John references the Holy Spirit of God in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, the spirit of truth. And the comforter, Jesus says, would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, Jesus says, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, Jesus says, because I, I ascend or I go unto the Father. So that there's good scriptural support for the idea that when John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, that the Spirit beareth witness and the Spirit is truth, the Spirit beareth witness to Jesus' water and blood, to his birth and to his death, well, Jesus said that that's exactly what the Spirit of God would bear witness unto in the heart of every man in John 16. That the Spirit of God would bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that He had come in the flesh, that He did what He said He did, that He ascended unto the Father. So there's, there's good reason to say that as well. Either way, the point of 1 John 5 verse 6 seems to be that there's ample scriptural testimony 
that, that is backed up by the Spirit of God that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And so, in connection with verse 5, if a man refuses that testimony, that man certainly does not have faith. And if that man does not have faith, then he is not overcoming the world. Because the thing that overcomes the world is our faith. So, if I am right about the fact that John is reiterating his breaking down of these false teachings, these false teachers that had gone out from them but were not of them, John's saying here these men are not properly equipped to help anybody overcome the world because they have not overcome the world. They are indeed false teachers. We continue in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now we come to one of the most controversial passages in the whole of the King James Bible, and for good reason. If you open to any other Bible other than the King James Version, the New King James Version, the Young's Literal Translation, or the Webster Bible, all of those other ones being based more or less on the King James, you will find the second half of verse 7 and the first half of verse 8 omitted from the text. It will read something like this. For there are three that bear record, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. That's what you will find in nearly every Bible that you open apart from those four that I mentioned. And this is because the Greek text that undergirds their English translation takes out this entire middle portion of the text. Now, of any Greek text controversy that we have in our Bibles where we look at the Greek text that undergirds all of these other versions and the different in kind Greek text that undergirds the King James, and we say the Textus Receptus says this and the critical text or this other text says, says something different, this is the one where our stance for the Textus Receptus is weakest of any that I found throughout the Bible. And what I mean by that is that even among our own text tradition, which we would call the, the, the majority text, there are very, there's very, very little by way of manuscript evidence that supports this middle passage of Scripture to be even in the Textus Receptus itself. That being said, however, I am very satisfied it ought to be in the text, and I'm going to tell you why next week. I'm going to devote the entire sermon next week to telling you why I believe that portion should be in our Bibles. It's a little bit complicated. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's certainly not something I can shoehorn into the middle of a bigger message. So that's going to be next week. It's going to get a, a little bit more academic. But what it's going to do is help us understand why it is that this was put into the third edition of Erasmus's Textus Receptus. And why we can be confident that it ought to be there. So for this week, because we have a Bible that we are confident in, I'm going to preach the whole text. With the confidence that what we have is what God intended us to have. And next week we'll defend why. So John tells us on the heels of saying that the Spirit bears witness, the bears the witness of Christ, that there are in fact three that bear witness in heaven of Christ's person and of his work. The Father 
the Word, who is Jesus Christ Himself, and the Holy Ghost. Notice once again, John uses the word word, which is, links him to his Gospel of John. Another reason why I'm comfortable linking water to the Gospel of John, because he is using the same terminology here. And so there are these three that bear witness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And in this statement, we find the clearest declaration of a doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity is a word that is not found in our Bibles, but it encompasses the truth found throughout, that though there is only one God, He exists in three different persons, not just three manifestations of one person, but three distinct persons, one God, different in person, but same in essence, quality, and character. And we find statements to this effect actually throughout the whole of the Bible. Around Christmas time every year, we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And there the Bible says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Interesting, is it not? We know this prophecy to be a prophecy of Jesus Christ. We know that he is the child who was born. We know that on his shoulders will be, the, uh, will, will be all, all power and glory and kingdom and honor. And one of the names that is given to him in this passage is the everlasting father. The father who has been forever. And so we begin to see this idea of Jesus, the son, being equated with the father. And of course, as we might expect, this should not be a surprise to you. The most clear statements we have on this issue, perhaps unsurprisingly, are from the book of John, the gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Skipping to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is the one who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now again, if you're debating with someone who does not believe that Jesus is God in flesh, they, uh, someone perhaps like the Jehovah's Witness that believe that uh, Jesus is a created being, or, or the Latter-day Saints um, who believe that Jesus is a created being, uh, in those cases they're going to redefine. They're going to reread. They're going to change the way they read this text. So I'm not, I'm not um, seeking to give you, full, I'm not going to talk about all that. I'm not going to define the text this evening, all those things. Way back when I preached John, which was like when I was just a little pastor. Um, way back when. Uh, I, I, I talked through that. I've talked through it on some Tuesdays. Um, I'm not going to get into, into those weeds. But the, the fact of the matter is this. You can trust the way that this was translated. It's translated in a way that is wholly consistent with the Greek language and with the, the text. And the Bible says this, that this one who is the word was with God and was God. How can someone be with God and God at the same time? Interesting. Let's consider some other passages. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 5, and the Bible says this, Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Notice the Jews' reaction to Jesus' statement. The Bible says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, which was the debate around John 5, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Interesting. So Jesus here equates himself as equal with God. And when he said that God was his father, everybody knew what he was saying. 
So much so that the Jews had a consensus about what he was saying and so wanted to kill him all the more. Now, this is very similar to what we read in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he was made in the form of God. So we see that same idea here that Jesus is equal with the Father. But then what's very interesting is that Jesus would get into another discussion in John 10. And notice what he says there. Again, I'm jumping into context. My apologies for that, but it's what it needs to be. John 10, verses 30 through 33, Jesus said, I and my father are one. Now, once again, he's saying this to the Jews and the Jews who last time they were very, very grumpy because Jesus said uh, that, that God is his father. And they said, ah, Jesus is equating himself with God making himself equal with God. Now, a few chapters later, Jesus says, I and my father are one. And the Bible says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answering them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy and because thou, being a man, notice this, makest thyself God. Not this time he said he was equal with God. They said, this time you have said, you are God. So all of this testifies to the uniqueness of a relationship between Jesus and the Father, a, a relationship which is well described in John 1.1, that Jesus was both with God and was God in the beginning, which means he is eternal. He has no beginning because he was there at the beginning. And the same can be said of the Holy Spirit as well. We considered earlier Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is coming out of the water, the Bible says, and as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the bodily form of a dove, and the Father's voice comes from heaven. And here we see the Spirit of God, the Son of God, the Word, and the Father in three different places at one time. Three distinct persons. The Father's voice is coming from heaven. It's not coming from that dove right there. It's coming from heaven. But there's the dove, but there's the Son. And the Son, and the Father, and the dove, they're all there. And one's the Holy Spirit, and one is the Word, and one is the Father. So we see that there's a distinction there. But then what's interesting is this. In the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, you recall the, the, the great time where all the um, Christians are selling what they have and they're giving their possessions to the apostles who are at that time deaconing, right? They're waiting tables. And they're taking all of these, these possessions so that they can distribute them to the needs of the saints. And there's a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell a parcel of land and they keep back a portion of the land but then they go to Peter and they seek to misrepresent what they have done, saying that they have given him all that they had while simultaneously keeping back a portion. Now, it wasn't a problem that they decided not to give the whole thing. It was theirs. They could do whatever they wanted with it. But what they decided to do was lie about it. What they decided to do was misrepresent it. And when Ananias does this, notice what Peter says to him in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? 
Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Ghost, then goes on to say, the one you have lied to is God, thus equating the Holy Ghost with God. And from this, we begin to form a picture. Of course, this is just a snippet, but we form a picture of this idea of what we often call the Godhead or the Trinity, depending on who you ask. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but they are all Jehovah God, one God, functioning in complete harmony of thought and of will and of action. And there are many, many different ways that I've described this over the years. You can talk about three gears that are working together unto one operation, right? That you have three gears and they're distinct gears, but they all turn in harmony. And in doing so, the machine operates. You pop out one of the gears, the machine doesn't operate anymore. It's one machine, but it has three gears. I've talked about the idea of a dance, not the kind of modern dancing today, but more like a ballroom dance, where two people are coming together to one and as one, and they are moving seamlessly one with another in complete harmony one with another. Perhaps the best picture, and I believe God may have built this picture into creation because it's so unique, is water. Water exists in three distinct forms. It's a liquid, it's a gas, and it's a solid. All three are completely distinct, yet they are the same in essence. You see ice, it's ice. You see steam, it's steam. You see water, it's water. But Ice is simply frozen water, and steam is simply boiled water or gaseous water. And what we call water is actually its liquid form, but it's also its general name, right? And so we have this idea that one of these ways in which water manifests itself is the general name. And then we have frozen water and we have gas water, but they're all water, but they're not because there's one that's water. If you think about this as the, as, as the Godhead, there is God. And a lot of times in Scripture, even Jesus references it, God is the Father, right? When the man, the, the, the man comes up and says, good master, and Jesus says, why call, me, why call ye me good? There is none good but God. Well, wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? Well, yes, but the common name for the Father is God, in the same way that the common name for liquid water is water. And yet, God the Son is still God in the same way that ice is still water, it's just frozen. And God the Spirit is still God in the same way that steam is still water, it's just gas. And if you allow that gas to cool, it condensates again into water. And if you allow that ice to melt, it again becomes water because it's all the same. It's just in different forms. And they are all water in a different form, even though only one of them is water. And that's kind of God. And perhaps such a perspective can help you relate and to understand this idea. And John tells us in John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, that all three members of the Godhead, who are three distinct persons, are in fact one. And these one unite their witness of the person and work of Christ. 
And of course, we just studied that, right? Uh, the Father from heaven, the Spirit like a dove, Jesus coming out of the water. All of these instances where all three members of the Godhead unite in their testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done. But then John also says there are these three witnesses on earth, of which we already spoke in verse 6. The Spirit, uh, whether that's the testimony of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men, which I, again I, I think makes most sense, or whether that's the Spirit at his baptism. The water, right? Either Jesus' birth, which I think makes most sense, or his baptism. And then the blood, Jesus' atoning death on the cross. There's not a whole lot of debate about what that one is. And they all agree in harmony about who Jesus is and what he has done, his person and his work. Summed up in the gospel, which we took the time to articulate last week in our sermon. So John goes on to say this in verses 9 and 10. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son hath the witness in himself... He that believeth not God, hath made, uh, not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. So John then contrasts these two sets of witnesses. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The, the first three are heavenly witnesses to Jesus' person and work. The second three are earthly witnesses to Jesus' person and work. And he says, as great as the earthly witnesses of Jesus' person and work are, which, by the way, remember, we're talking about the, in John's day, they were much, much closer to the earthly witnesses of Jesus' person and work. John had seen Jesus' person, right? He was physically, verbally testifying to what his eyes had seen and his ears had heard. They could go talk to Peter. They could go talk to Paul. They could go talk to John. They could go talk to Thomas. They could ask these guys what they had seen. The earthly testimony was still there and alive and real. And John says, as potent as that earthly testimony is, how much greater is the heavenly testimony? How much greater is the testimony of the Father regarding His Son, of the Spirit regarding the Son. The testimony of God's declaration and His pleasure in His Son, the testimony of God's approval in what His Son did through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The man who believes God's testimony and so receives the Son of God, John says, receives this testimony in his heart. Why? Because the Spirit of God comes and indwells him. And then John drives to the heart of the claims of the false teachers. It's one thing for these false teachers to reject the earthly witness of Jesus' divinity and his person and his work. It's one thing for these false teachers to separate you from other believers and to compel you to live in the world and to tell you that Jesus has not come in the flesh and to say, don't believe John. Don't believe Peter. Don't believe Paul. Don't believe what they're saying. It's one thing for them to deny the earthly witness. It's another thing entirely to deny the heavenly witness. It's another thing entirely to deny God's testimony. He says the witness of God is greater than the witness of men. And the witness of God exists to this point as well. Now, this is interesting. And this is going to give you a little preview for next week. Verses 9 and 10 don't make a whole lot of sense if verses 7 and 8 don't talk about the witness in heaven and earth. 
That's one of the big reasons why it ended up being in our Bibles, because 9 and 10 make no sense. If, if all 7 and 8 says is, there are three that bear record in heaven, and these three agree in one, then there's no contrast, there's no difference. Just So take that for what it's worth as, as, as we think through this. Within our text, however, it makes perfect sense. There's this comparison between earthly testimonies and heavenly testimonies. Even if these false teachers reject the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they must also reject the witness of the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And in rejecting that witness, they make God a liar. And 1 John 2.21 says, No lie is of the truth. Which means if God's a liar, he's not of the truth. And if he's not of the truth, then he's not of the light. And if he's not of the light, then he is not light. And if he is not light, then he's not God. So that the witness of Jesus as God in flesh, having come in the flesh, must be true because God himself has testified of it. Now, as we step into our application this evening, I would like to draw ourselves back to that earthly witness of the Spirit. I've interpreted that as the witness of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men, as John testified in John 16. That he, and then connecting this to what John said here in verse 10, that he that believeth on the Son hath the witness in himself. And this is very important. I want to park on that concept. He that believeth in the Son hath this witness in himself. There comes a time in the lives of most believers, especially those who were saved at a young age, where there are doubts that arise in their hearts regarding whether or not they have truly accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And based upon our knowledge of the Word of God and our belief that salvation is a one-time final transaction founded exclusively upon faith in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have many strategies to deal with the child who is struggling, or, or, or adult for that matter, who is struggling with their faith. We fall back upon several basic testimonies to assure our hearts before God in those times of doubt. For some, it's that memory of kneeling and uh, seeking Christ and, and, and the feelings and everything associated with that memory. For others, perhaps it's a date that is written in their Bible. For some, it's a baptism certificate that's hanging on their wall. Or perhaps there's a verse that they memorized at the time that they accepted Christ as their Savior. The verse that tipped them over the edge, that then they chose to hide in their heart, so that when Satan would bring the doubts and the fears and the concerns to their minds, they can quote that verse and remember the assurance and the joy and the, and, and the, the opportunity of that day when they came to Christ. And all of that uh, is good and it's fine and it's, 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 it's meritorious in itself. Good things. But I want to share with you the absolute best strategy for assurance of your salvation. One which brings the most confidence you can possibly have. Gives you irrefutable assurance that you are in Christ whenever you are in that place. In 1 John 5, verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Paul would often speak of this as well. 
In 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says this. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Paul speaks here of two concepts that are connected with accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit of God's work in that transaction. The first is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the second is that he becomes the earnest in our hearts. That word earnest meaning a down payment of sorts. Now, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers, he commanded them this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. From this, we recognize the nature of the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a direct and irrefutable proof that you are a child of God. The Bible tells us that when you believe, you receive of this Spirit and you are kept by this Spirit. And notice what Ephesians 4.30 says is the duration of that keeping. You are sealed until the day of redemption. Until the day that God redeems you to himself, the Holy Spirit of God is your stamp of ownership. You are his, you are stamped as his, and there's coming a day when God will take you, he'll come into that reservation, that place of reservations, and he'll take all the things that are stamped reserved for God, and God will redeem them, and he will take them with him. Nowhere, then, does the Bible speak of an unsealing. Nowhere does the Bible speak of an unbirth. Nowhere does the Bible speak to the possibility of one who is in Christ ever possibly being out of Christ. Nowhere does the Bible speak of the possibility of losing one's salvation. So I reiterate that idea. So then the presence of the Spirit of God is our greatest assurance of salvation. But notice here the warning in Ephesians 4 verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Paul warns that it is possible to grieve this spirit that has sealed us. He then would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, quench not the spirit. So it is possible, Paul warns, to grieve the Holy Spirit that has sealed us until the day of redemption or to quench the spirit of God that is within us. And we've already talked about Galatians 5, but this is the same language that we see. I read Galatians 5, verse 16. Let's read it again, but let's continue on in that text. Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Now follow what Paul is saying here. When we're walking in the Spirit, we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. We talked about that a little bit already. So then when we are not walking in the Spirit, we are fulfilling the lust of the flesh. 
Thus the flesh is what manifests itself in us. So then, a person who is sealed until the, spirit of, uh, until the, the day of redemption, but as Paul acknowledges here, that person can walk out of the spirit or walk in the flesh, is grieving the spirit of God, quenching the spirit of God in his life. The spirit of God is not able to manifest the fruit of the spirit in his life because he's grieving the spirit that has sealed him into the day of redemption. He is quenching the spirit and so he will manifest instead the things that are naturally within him which are the fruit of the flesh. But when we walk in the spirit, these nine great virtues are produced in us. And when these virtues are produced in us, here's what we know. It's not us that are producing them. It's the Spirit that's producing them. The fruit of the Spirit is manifesting through us. Now connect this with 1 John. We love God. His commandments are not grievous. We're thus loving the brethren. We're doing righteousness. We're abiding in Christ. We're walking in the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in us. And in 1 John terms, we are living in the, thus this fullness of joy. And that fullness of joy, we might say it this way, can I describe that fullness of joy as just a little taste of heaven? Could we describe that fullness of joy as a little bit of a down payment of what we're looking forward to one day? Would you be comfortable with me describing that fullness of joy as the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So that when I'm experiencing this place where the commandments of God are not grievous, where I'm loving the brethren, where I'm keeping his commandments, where I'm doing those things that he has called me to do, and thus I'm bearing out this reality in my life, can I say that that assures my heart before God that the spirit of God is within me? And if the Spirit of God is within me, then I know that I am His and He is mine. So that even, Christian, if your memory does not recall the day that you got on your knees and you asked Christ to save you, even, Christian, if you don't have a date written in your Bible, even if you don't have a baptism certificate hanging on your wall, there is an assurance that you have that is with you all the time. Verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath this witness in himself. The Spirit of the living God is in you. The earnest of your inheritance, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. But here's the thing, Christian. The presence of the Spirit of God is only truly seen in your life when you are in a certain spiritual condition. And that spiritual condition is walk in the Spirit. Abide in Christ. That's when you know He's there because you're not grieving Him and you're not quenching Him, which means you're, you are experiencing Him. When you are in humble obedience so that if you're struggling with assurance, if you're struggling with am I in or am I out, the first place to look is your own heart. If you're living in sin, if you're grieving the Spirit, 
If you're quenching the Spirit, don't be surprised when you're struggling about whether or not that witness is within you. You can't see him. He may be there. But if you can't see him, it's because you've tamped him down. It's because you've put a light over or a bushel over that light. It's because you've said, I'm not interested in you right now. Be quiet. I've got other things going on in my life. And he's being quiet. Which means he's not testifying to you. Which means he's not assuring your heart before God. Which means that witness has been dampened in your heart. And of course, the best thing about this is that 1 John gave us very early on the solution. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restoration of fellowship through confession and repentance. And there we are. We're right with God. We're aligned in humility. And in doing so, we're abiding in Christ again. We're walking in the Spirit again. The Spirit of God's testimony is able to work in our hearts again. And we have that assurance before Him again. The indelible and unmistakable testimony of the sealing of God in your life. This witness that is within you that is true and is no lie because He is the very Spirit of truth. He is the very Spirit of the living God. Unto that end, we can know without question that we are in Christ until the day of redemption. And may this be in our hearts and may through it our hearts be assured before God because our witness, it's not just the witness on earth. It's not just the witness in heaven. It is the witness in you through the Spirit of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.